Hello, and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today, we continue to follow The Silver King after World War II through the trilogy of plays called The Silver Fields of Northbrook. We now begin the second play, which is called Wrigley Days. The Silverfields have settled comfortably into their brand new home in Northbrook. And of course, as they grow into their new surroundings, they often reflect and enjoy the city life of Chicago. There are many trips to visit family and friends, and much of those years in the city focus on visits to the iconic Wrigley Field. This is the introduction to Wrigley Days. For the Silverfields, Wrigley Field, home of the Cubs and Bears, was an iconic base in their Chicago urban geography. Rivaled only by the Serpentine Lakeshore Drive, generations of extended family made important pilgrimage to this shrine. Their monsters of the midway held sway. The Baileys sat in the temporary right field stands. The Gordons sat above third base. They have a view of the Waveland Avenue scrimmages as citizens poured from their homes to battle for footballs. Summer day games delivered Ernie Banks and Billy Williams. The Cubs, lovable losers for decades, consumed generations of fans before winning a World Series in 2016 beating the Cleveland Indians in seven games. A lead celebrant in that enormous victory was Shirley Seavers, who had been Shirley Silverfield until 1960. That was the year that the Silverfields of Northbrook left to become the Seavers of Rockford. Now, 56 years later, Shirley was 94 and living comfortably in her apartment in Rockford. She had retired from a successful career as a geriatric care consultant and was now sharing the great news that her cubbies were winners. After their Game 7 victory over the Indians, the score Cubs 8, Indians 7 in 10 innings, Billy Witts, a journalist for the New York Times sports writers, wrote a wonderful story about that iconic victory under the title, Cubs End 108-Year Wait for World Series Title After a Little More Torment. On November 3rd, 2016, from Cleveland, Billy Witz wrote, If you are going to endure years, no, generations of futility and heartbreak, when you do finally win a World Series championship, it may as well be a memorable one. The Chicago Cubs did just that, shattering their 108-year championship drought in epic fashion with an 8-7, 10-inning victory over the Cleveland Indians in Game 7, which began on Wednesday night, carried into Thursday morning, and seemed to end all too soon. When the Indians rallied with three 
runs in the eighth inning, including a two-out, two-strike, two-run thunderbolt of a home run by Raja Davis off closer Araldus Chapman, the Cubs found a way to beat back the ghosts of playoffs past. After a brief rain delay following the ninth inning, they pushed two runs across in the tenth on a double by Ben Zobris, the series' most valuable player, and a single by Miguel Montero. The Cubs then had to hold their breath in the bottom of the inning when Davis hit a run-scoring single to pull the Indians to a run behind. But reliever Mike Montgomery replaced Carl Edwards and got Michael Martinez to hit a slow roller into the infield. Third baseman Chris Bryant scooped it up and threw across to first baseman Anthony Rizzo. As the ball made its flight across the diamond, the stadium went silent for one of only a few times all night, and only until it settled into Rizzo's glove. Then the huge contingent of Cub fans erupted, and the players raced to the middle of the infield to celebrate. We're world champions, Rizzo said in the alcohol-soaked visitor's clubhouse after he had taken a break from embracing the actor Bill Murray. The Chicago Cubs are world champions. Let that sink in. Thousands of fans lingered for nearly an hour after the game, moving into the field level of the stadium, waving the ubiquitous W flags, singing the victory anthem, Go Cubs Go, and roaring when Rizzo held up the ball he had caught for the final out. One fan held a sign, Now I can die in peace. That sleep will no longer be tortured by old memories of collapses in 1969, 1984, and 2003, and talk of curses of Black Cats Billy Goltz and Steve Bartman, the fan who infamously interfered with a foul ball in the playoffs. If you want to believe in that kind of stuff, it's going to hold you back for a long time, Cubs manager Joe Madden said. I love tradition. I think tradition is worth time mentally, and tradition is worth being upheld, but curses and superstitions are not. On Wednesday night, the Cubs did not so much beat the Indians as survive them. The heart-stopping end to the series and the 108-year wait carried with it an additional historical perk. The Cubs became the first team to rally from a three-games-to-one series deficit since Kansas City did so in 1985, and the first to do it on the road since Pittsburgh in 1979 when the Pirates beat the Orioles. Meanwhile, in this matchup of long-suffering franchises, the Indians' suffering will carry on longer. They have not won since 1948, and the excruciating way in which they suffered the defeat with three consecutive losses will take its place atop a list that, until now, was topped by the 1997 World Series, in which the Indians lost a ninth-inning lead and eventually the series to Florida. The roller coaster of a game took place in an unusually neutral environment with so many of the Cubs' passionate and well-heeled fans finding their way into the stadium. The crowd of 38,104 was evenly split, and the two groups of fans spent the evening alternating full-throated roars, robbing the environment of any lulls. Not even the 17-minute rain delay affected their spirits.
They were the latest to witness the Cubs, who won 103 games in the regular season, the most in baseball, showing their medal during the playoffs. They rallied from four runs down in the ninth inning to eliminate San Francisco, which had won 10 consecutive elimination games. After being shut out for 21 consecutive innings by Los Angeles in the National League Championship Series, they rebounded to win three in a row, beating Clayton Kershaw in the clincher. When the Cubs went to Wrigley Field on Sunday, knowing they would have to win three in a row, Rizzo lightened the mood. He arranged for the Rocky movies to be played on all of the televisions in the clubhouse and then shadowboxed around the room while half-dressed. Rizzo's message, the series was going the distance. In Rockford, where Shirley Seavers was reliving the joy of that win the following morning, she read Billy Witz's story and commented, He got it right. My guys won. What else do you need to know? Shirley, secure and satisfied as a fan in the course of the Cubs' history, died in the spring of 2018. After the baseball season, crisp fall Sundays meant the Bears at Wrigley Field. And of course, there was an additional 10,000 fan stand set up in right field to accommodate the roaring followers of the Monsters of the Midway. Those years in the 50s and 60s meant Rick Caceres, Willie the Wisp Gallimore, Mike Ditka, Dick Buckus, and the Kansas Comet, Gail Sayers. The Bears of those years won the NFL title game in 1963 with a fearsome defense and a high-top quarterback named Billy Wade. They beat Y.A. Tittle's New York Giants, 14-10. to The Giants had lost the 1961 and 62 championship games to the famed Green Bay Packers. And the Bears, who had lost to the Giants in the 1956 title game in New York City, were ready to be winners. It was a cold December 29th day, and the temperature when they teed it up was 10 degrees. Gail Sayers, the Kansas Comet, died on September 23rd in 2020. George Vesey, a legendary sports writer for the New York Times, wrote a wonderful obituary about Gail Sayers that was published on September 24th. 2020, and it begins. Gail Sayers, the will of the wisp running back who, in a short but brilliant career with the Chicago Bears, left opponents, as they used to say, clutching at air, died early on Wednesday at his home in Warkarusa, Indiana. He was 77. Vesey wrote Though his career was cut short by knee injuries, Sayers is the greatest halfback I ever saw, said Ernie Accorsi, who was the general manager of three National Football League teams. Jim Brown was the greatest running back of all time, he said, and some great fullbacks may have had more heft and power than Sayers, who was six feet tall and weighed 198 pounds, 
but nobody could cut corners like Sayers. As Sayers himself said of ability to elude tacklers in those close quarters, quote, all I needed was 18 inches. A consensus All-American at the University of Kansas, where he was called the Kansas Comet, Sayers chose to play for the Bears of the established NFL rather than the Kansas City Chiefs of the upstart American Football League in 1965. He went on to have one of the greatest rookie seasons ever. His six-touchdown day as a rookie was one of the greatest displays of offense by a single player in football history, matching a feat accomplished by two earlier players. No pro player has scored six touchdowns since. Sayers did it against the San Francisco 49ers during an all-day rain on December 12, 1965, in the mud of Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs, running on slippery patches of temporary turf covering the stadium's baseball diamond. Asked to describe his strategies and techniques, Sayers told Sports Illustrated in 1965, quote, I have no idea what I do. I hear people talk about dead leg, shake, change of pace, but I do things without thinking about them, end quote. It all came crashing down on November 10, 1968, Sayers' fourth season, when Kermit Alexander of San Francisco tried to take out Sayers' lead blocker. When the player moved, Alexander crashed into Sayers' right knee. It's gone, Sayers told Alexander, who stayed to comfort him. It was my fault, all my fault. Alexander said, God, you never want to hurt a player, never, especially a great player like Gale. Sayers exonerated Alexander. Rebuilt by the knee surgery of the time, Sayers returned in 1969 to lead the league with 236 carries for 1,032 yards and was named the NFL Comeback Player of the Year. As the Kansas Comet flashed across the Chicago skyline. Wrigley Field and Wrigley Days made its imprint on the silver fields of Northbrook. For the family, those days, those chances, those sweet moments were indelible. And today, as the Cubs continue their pursuit of another championship in Wrigley Field, and the Bears play on in football fashion at Soldiers Field, we have reached the end of the introduction to Wrigley Days. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.